0: You found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to our podcast and enjoying it, please help out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash oak island to learn more. All right. First, let me welcome Sebastian, our new patron for this week. Uh, thank you so much, Sebastian, for your generosity. Don't forget, you can come and join us during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island for kind of a live back-and-forth discussion between me and a few of the other uh, listeners and patrons. Uh, just go over to patreon.com uh, slash dig in Oak Island and go to the post section. you find it all there. Also, uh, patrons, anybody out there listening, um, we are going to have a contest for you guys in the coming weeks. Uh, sometime probably in February is where I'm thinking. Um, I just received uh, two copies, actually, of a new book called Oak Island Illustrated, The 225-Year Search for Truth and Treasure, and it was written by historian John Bell. It's a great, and it's a beautiful book that uh, has so many different pictures. It focuses mostly on theories uh, that surround the Oak Island mystery, and it's really kind of, it's a great little um I'm not through it all yet, but it's it's a fun, great, and fun little addition to anybody's uh, Oak Island uh, book uh, shelf. There, so um, I have an extra copy which they sent me, um, and I'm going to have Mister Bell on the podcast soon, probably right at the beginning of the off season. Uh, but we'll have an extra copy here, like I said, they sent to me, and uh, we're going to have give that we're going to give that away to uh, one lucky patron. I'll have more on that soon, so stay tuned. All the more reason to become a patron for Digging Oak Island. Okay. Before we get into your questions, I just want to mention one thing. Last week, we did not get a new episode of The Curse of Oak Island, but we did get a new drilling down episode uh, in the normal time slot for The Curse of Oak Island. It was called Behind the Quest, and it was really cool. I mean, I love this stuff, right? Any extra content from Oak Island's terrific, and I'm always in on that kind of stuff. I know some people like it more than me because some people are really into the show more than really I am when I'm more into the mystery and the quest in the show, but um, I still love the show and I love this kind of stuff. Now, there wasn't a whole lot of news in all this, certainly not anything for us really to dig into or worry too much about, Um, but I think we need to mention one incredibly important sentence or sentence or two that uh, came out at the beginning of this show and i want every single listener anyone who can hear the sound of my voice i want you to burn this line into your brains and remember this when the season ends so let me just set the scene the show begins maddie blake meets with executive producers john levy and joe Lassard. behind them is a drill rig and it's in a weird place. And Maddie questions what they could be drilling and why are they drilling here since they're not in the Money Pit area, but instead out by the Stone Triangle, which is just south of the Money Pit. It's kind of on the southern shore of the island in between Isaac's Point, which is just, off of, just south of uh, Smith's Cove, and the swamp. It's kind of halfway in between those two. And uh, when he asks about why this drill rig is here and what they could be doing here, it is Mr. Levy, or Levy, I think, Who answers by saying they're using the rig here for, quote, some brand new cutting edge technology that they will be bringing on the island later this year. Once they use this technology, it will solve the Oak Island mystery. So there you go, folks. Right from the horse's mouth, this is going. They are putting technology on the island right now that is going to, as he says, solve the Oak Island mystery. So I guess this is indeed the final season of the Curse of Oak Island since this technology they are employing here is, um, as the producers say, is going to solve the whole thing. And think about it, folks. The 225-year treasure hunt is apparently, if you think about it, really, already over since this was filmed this past summer. This happened months ago. This technology's already been deployed. And I suppose... The mystery seemingly solved, or else why else leave that line in, right? They could have edited it out. Wouldn't have, wouldn't have made a big deal at all. Could it be the producers are exaggerating? Well, who am I to say, right? Only time can tell. But boy, oh boy, talk about setting the bar high for yourself. <laughs> anyway, we'll have more on exaggerations in just a bit. Let's get to your emails for this week. We can start off with a great one from Andy who writes, In case you didn't notice, or no one else had brought this up before me, the edit of this week's episode implies that Carmen Leg does not ride a prairie whale covered wagon, <laughs> but drives what looks like a 1990s midlife crisis Corvette. Thank you, Andy. You know, Andy, after I read this and saw this commented about, I, I thought maybe I would uh, try to get a hold of a few of my contacts, people who are familiar, people on the island, people I know, gotten to know over the years, and um, try to get a little confirmation that this blue Corvette we saw parked by one of the trailers, maybe it was a research center, was indeed Carmen Legs, and not, oh, I don't know, you know, I'm just a random member of the crew like Mr. Levy's or or maybe Gary Drayton's. I mean I could see Gary Drayton driving that Corvette, can't you? But you know what? I didn't get confirmation because I prefer to let the idea that this vet is indeed Carmen Legs just kind of stay out there and become a fact all on its own, don't you? <laughs> it's just a great image. Carmen Leg, after a long day of sweating by this fire and swinging a hammer, he wipes himself off and gets into his blue 1990s Corvette and maybe does a donut or two in the parking lot and then peels out of the Ross Farm Museum. I just want to go on believing that happens literally five days a week up there at the Ross Farm Museum. Anyway, thank you, Andy. Uh, You're right. You aren't the only one to bring that up, but uh, it was pretty funny. Um, Let's turn now to our friend Steve who writes, Dave, first of all, Merry Christmas uh, to you and your entire family. I also enjoyed a Christmas carol on sit-downs and sessions with a fine Kentucky bourbon. Okay, let me stop here real quick, Steve. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. We had a great time doing that. We do it every year, but we were unable to get together last year, so uh, this was just so much fun to see all those friends again and kind of rekindle this Christmas tradition we have. Of uh, acting out the Christmas Carol for our radio station, which both myself and the man you heard playing Mister Scrooge, uh, Chris Poe, we both are DJs at WDVR FM uh, in uh, New Jersey and broadcasting in Western Jersey and Eastern Pennsylvania. So glad you enjoyed it. Anyway, Steve continues. I was thinking about the ads and the other tools they found on the island over the years: axes, picks, etc. Something to consider when Carmen Lake dates a tool. My grandfather was born in 1907, and through my dad, born in 1942, I have inherited some of my, father, my grandfather's tools. Now, all three of us have lived in the era of mass-produced tools, and we've all shared, we all shared tools when it was just as easy to go to the hardware store and buy a new one. Back in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, this wasn't the case. If a tool was still usable, it probably was shared or passed down through families. They were probably expensive and sometimes hard to obtain, so if Carmen Legg says this was a tool made until 1750, that doesn't mean that it necessarily ended up in the dirt before 1750. A son or grandson could have been using this tool well after that, if it was still in good condition. I wasn't alive when my grandpa was building out this tool shed and workbench in the 1930s and 1940s, but used a few of his tools 80-plus years later. Just a thought. See you in the new year, Steve steve there's no other way to say this other than you are 100% correct and i think we need to keep that in mind as we start seeing these pieces of tools and this you know parts of tools and stuff man if you go through my garage you're going to find tools that oh my god they're at least 75 years old as far as i can tell or at least they look that way i mean they were certainly my father's And if he purchased them, he did so more than half a century ago. Uh, But some of them might have even been his father's and therefore much older than even that. Now, people have always passed tools down, especially heavy ones like axes and such, things you don't use all the time. I don't know about you, but the only time I would ever purchase something like a new axe or a hammer or something like that is when my old one is broken or doesn't work well anymore, which is like never And honestly, I'll let you know when that happens, you know, when I actually do break an axe or need to buy one, because I never have. I have what is obviously my father's or maybe my father-in-law's sitting there in the garage. Uh, You know, this old stuff that they were building back then was really built to last. It wasn't built on plastic or with plywood or anything like that. Great thought again, Steve. Thank you so much for that. Okay, let's go to another friend of the show, Jeff, who says, Hi, Dave. Merry Christmas. I'm a bit behind on this email, but I have some questions regarding a few episodes back when the swamp doctor was doing his water sample tests of his boreholes surrounding the money pit. My question is when testing these extracted water samples, did they measure the fresh water versus salt water content? How did this compare to the water elsewhere on the island? Was there any considerations of which boreholes showed contamination from the flood tunnels? And were the traces of gold elements found in water samples with a high saltwater ratio or in fresh groundwater? I believe fresh groundwater. Um, I'm almost certain of that. I have to go back and watch that episode, but I think that was mentioned, by the way, Jeff. Um, They did not give a salinization uh, um, sample. There was something there. I can't remember. Anyway, he continues. Also, has anyone considered the purpose of the swamp could have been to create a source of fresh water or brackish water for farming? The island was inhabited by cabbage farmers, surrounded by salt water not conducive to farming. It could explain why the swamp was created in the first place, as well as the stone road, the ox carts, the ox shoes, and barrels used for the transport of water to the farmers throughout the island to water their cabbage. I'm sure they had wells, probably for drinking water, but farming would require a much larger fresh water source. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff, again, as far as testing goes, I only know, I think what you know, if you're watching that old episode, um, I have no information beyond that. Uh, My guess is... Even if it wasn't talked about, this was all discussed by Spooner and his team. But again, it's not considered exciting or a good narrative for the viewers, so we don't get that on the show. Uh, A lot of people assume this type of omission means the information gathered suggests something not treasure-related, and I often accuse them of that. That could be true. But I'm almost a little more inclined to think that it's the result of editing sometimes and the editors deciding for us what we want to see and learn. And what we actually think is exciting or not. Does that make sense? And what I would suggest for you, if you haven't done so already, is go back and listen to our podcast from October 20th. Um, It was an interview with Dr. Matt Lukman. He's the guy who started this, uh, who did this first testing. And he gives a lot of information on there that might answer some of your questions or any questions you might have in the future. So go back and give that a listen. Uh, That was a fascinating little conversation there. Okay, uh, as far as the swamp was concerned, perhaps, you know, that is an answer. Um, but from what I know, the swamp is spring-fed, which is kind of obvious since it keeps filling back up with fresh water, right? That, and the spring likely emptied um, slowly into the bay. But then during the middle of the 1900s, or early 1900s, I believe, the road you see now that runs between the swamp and the beach, was built, thus blocking the swamp from draining into the ocean and therefore greatly expanding the size of the swamp. Now, I might have some of those details wrong, but that's pretty much the basic idea of what happened to the swamp in recent history. When we look at um, Oak Island, besides the idea of um, water level rises in the oceans... The two places that don't look at all like they would have looked in 1795 are the Money Pit, obviously, and the swamp. The swamp doesn't look anything like it would have looked in the 1860s or 1890s, right? It doesn't look like the swamp that it is now until they built that road, thus really changing the whole ecology there of of the swamp. That's the right word to use. Anyway, Jeff, thank you so much. Let's go now to our friend Matt, who says, Hi Dave, I've been meaning to compliment you on starting up the Patreon. Well worth five bucks a month. Keep up the good work. Thank you, man. I appreciate that, and thanks for coming by. Uh, I have been thinking lately about the Drilling Down episode that started season nine, specifically when Gary and Mattie Blake, that top pocket find, find that he was keeping from the audience. I, I don't think we have seen that find in the show yet. That was a painful episode, wasn't it? <laughs> painful scene. <laughs> If we have and it is uh, it is that button found early in the season, that might be the most Bush League thing I've ever seen. It might be. Uh, who knows? I don't think we'll ever know. I love to make New Year's predictions, so here are my predictions for the show. One, during one of the giant can drops later in the season, Gary will find a gold coin or a small piece of gold in the spoils. Hey, that'd be cool. Two, nothing else will be found, but this gold object will become proof that there is treasure in the money pit and will hold special provenance like the Lead Cross, the Money Pit Bones, and the Stone Path. Three, next season, the 10th and final season, the brothers will finally pull off the Big Dig. Four, the Big Dig will bring up nothing of consequence. <laughs> and five, the show will end with the brothers claiming that there was treasure in the Money Pit at some point in time based on the gold found this season, but it was retrieved long ago, leaving the door open for future specials if any new data or records come to light. I could be totally wrong here, just doing a little speculating. That's always the fun part, right, Matt? Let me know what you think, Matt, from Havertown. But, 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 Matt, the producer said they're employing technology right now, which means they did it six months ago. That's going to solve the mystery. Didn't you hear that? Season 10? How could there be season 10? The mystery's solved by the end of this season according to the producer and with this technology. Now, just keep that in mind as the season ends. The producer says this technology is going to solve the mystery and the producer chooses to leave those sentences in this show for all of us to see, be that as it may. (laughs) Think of that what you know, what you will. I don't know, Pat, Matt, your predictions aren't looking so good uh, when I, you know, just, just putting that in there, you know, it's all going to be over always. <laughs> yeah, I always love your emails, man. Uh, great to hear from you again. Uh, let's go now to our man in England, Gary, who writes, hi, Dave, having seen the uh, paucity of fines recovered this season. Great word, by the way. I've come to the conclusion that this will be the last season of the program. Wow. I mean, obviously, I've said that a couple times already. They will drop the four big cans, find very little, and that will be that. Rick and Marty will also have been presented with a perfect get-out clause. Probably claim the restrictions put on their digging activities has made it impossible for them to continue. I'm now also convinced that there is no treasure at the bottom of the money pit. Surprisingly, the evidence has been staring us in the face from the beginning. Every version I have read of the discovery of the shaft and early searcher activity has been missing one key element. There is no mention of any shoring in the shaft. Log platforms every 10 feet, coconut fiber, charcoal, clay, and the stone tablet, but no shoring. It must surely be impossible to dig a 100-foot shaft with no shoring, meaning no, no wall size, nothing keeping it all up, right? And it cannot be because the soil is stable. Every searcher shaft dug has had to use loads of timber to stop the shaft collapsing. I think the shaft is either a natural sinkhole or, as Joy Steele suggests, a tar kiln. I think it's an interesting story, and I'm sure there is much more to be found archaeologically, but I think the treasure hunt has come to an end. Regards, Gary in East Yorkshire, England. Gary, you are for sure not alone in your thoughts here, I got to tell you that. And I get what you're saying, but I'm just not there yet, right? (laughs) I think it might be a little bit of show fatigue you're experiencing here to some degree right we have been watching this show for nearly a decade now being told how close we are to a breakthrough to to the thing that could be the most important that one thing we keep hearing about this we've been watching it forever still year after year no treasure and that just has to damage the confidence of the of the viewer to some degree right uh, but in order for me to be a full, full-on full skeptic like you seem to be now, I need to know what these recent water results are really all about, before I'm willing to say the mystery is not treasure-related. I have other questions too, but I'm going to start with that one, okay? Gary, let's see what the rest of this season brings. I do question the real motivations behind the exaggerated aching about the work stoppage in the swamp. I mean, they are Currently rearing, re- just tearing apart the swamp only feet from this area that we were told was some sort of shocking stop, you know, um, and we are also now getting to see the actual size of this restricted area, and just how small it is. And as we do that, it becomes more and more obvious um, that this isn't really all that important or that big a deal. Yet they still act and still talk about how the government won't let them search for their treasure and that kind of stuff. So it's being kept alive for some reason for sure, even though it's becoming more and more obvious to us that it is nowhere near as big a deal as they're claiming it is. To me, those kind of inaccuracies and inconsistencies, though I'm not reading anything into it myself, they are what causes rumors and conspiracy theories to start like yours here, even though I don't, you know, to call what you're saying a conspiracy theory is kind of overstating, I think, what you're getting at. But you, you see what I'm, you, you get my point. Let's just see where we go here. Thanks again, Gary. Great, great email. Okay. We're going to finish up with two emails from two different listeners, both named Scott. Here is the first one Hi, Dave. Thank you for the podcast. I believe we may be overlooking the reason that work at the Stone Road stopped. In episode six, the root cause, they found a large wood beam running perfectly level and alongside at the west side of the stone road. It was described as, quote, a large piece of wood on the edge that lines up with the edge of the road going towards the north, end quote. Alex Lagina then states, quote, this is exactly almost what we are looking for. I mean, a large piece of wood can be both carbon dated, dendrochronology, and it is part of the structure, end quote. The team then decides to instead date a route that runs under the road instead my hypothesis is that there was undeniable evidence available on a large square edged beam that indicated that the stone road was more of a modern construction therefore all work on the stone road was halted because it no longer supported the treasure narrative the show then manufactured or embellished the conflict with the government and native people's agencies as as an explanation for stopping work on the stone road I predict that we will no longer see the team explore the stone road in any significant way. Best wishes, Scott. Okay, thank you, Scott. As I said before, these things, these inconsistencies, these exaggerations of this whole thing, or at best, these things that are poorly explained to the viewer, right? If you want to give them the real benefit of the doubt. It's these, this kind of thing that causes a vacuum in the information, and for viewers and fans to fill in those gaps with their own theories, theories like this. I have no idea if you're right or wrong, right? It is undeniable in my mind. What I'll say is this it is absolutely undeniable in my mind that the conflict with the government, to use that phrase, was, as you called it, embellished by the show. Now, I'm not in the business of trying to try and figure out why the team would embellish this. I can only comment on what they tell us. But, I absolutely love that so many of you guys are actually in the business of trying to figure this out and hypothesizing what this might really be all about. Um, if any of you turn out to be correct on um, any of your theories about why they've done this with this work stoppage thing, you better darn well write me back at the end of the season and gloat a little bit. Jeez. Scott, what I'll say is this. Your theory is officially on the record. Thank you for writing in. Okay. I want to finish up now with the other listener named Scott, who says, Dave, I am a retired history teacher from Michigan, and I've discovered your podcast in the last year, and it's quite enjoyable. Your recent take on the Laginas suspending the archaeological work bothered me. I'm not 100% sure, but fairly sure these guys came from humble beginnings. They work to make their money. They're also from the Upper Peninsula, where there is a well-known dislike of government intervention in one's daily life. That being said, the first time Marty was upset, I viewed it much like your listener who described it like described it, was like wanting to get the next call. He was grandstanding. You also have to throw in the History Channel's wishes, money, time, things we never saw, and of course, COVID. There was a lot that went into that decision we don't know about. We may see the archaeologists return next season. I hope so. I enjoy that aspect of the show. Something to ponder. Thank you, Scott in Michigan. Okay, Scott, um... I completely understand everything you're saying here, uh, and, I, and I'm saying this on this podcast here and reading this uh, because I want to present somebody to present the other side, and I think you've done a great job here. But let me tell you what I'm seeing here when I read your email. First, you're giving me rationalizations in the beginning of this email for what they're saying and why they would say this stuff beyond just this is how they feel, right? You're coming up with reasons why they would feel this way. Almost making it sound as little, a little bit like it would be, um, maybe it's a bit unreasonable, but you can understand their unreasonable behavior. You know, things like their working class roots or a healthy government skepticism that's part of their upbringing and not necessarily something for them to take blame for. But then you're coming up with reasons why they would be exaggerating the whole situation, And you're offering up another culprit for that, right? Besides just them, you're offering up the History Channel in this quote-unquote grandstanding. Here's the thing. Neither you nor I know what's in their hearts. We don't know their motivations. And that's because they haven't told us what they are, right? All we can work on is what they gave us. As viewers, we can only go with what we know for sure. And what I know for sure is they have, and this is undisputable in my mind, They have exaggerated, at best, exaggerated the situation, and at worst, have at times outright lied about it. I've said this many, many times, but let me say it again. Despite what you hear, the work stoppage is not, quote unquote, taking away their island. The work stoppage is not stopping them from searching for the treasure, and it is not to use their own words, something new, unexpected, or my favorite one, shocking. These were all the result of laws put into place specifically for Oak Island over a decade ago. The show and its producers, of which the Laginas are among those producers, decided this was how they were going to present the situation to the viewers. And honestly, they presented us with something that was exaggerated and probably a bit dishonest. Plain and simple. I have no interest in what their rationale was to present it in this manner. I have no interest in the reasons behind them. I only care about what they chose to do, what they chose to keep on the air after shooting it many times, looking at it over and over again in editing. I can only comment on that. Listen, here's the thing, and this is for everybody out there listening. I hate doing this. I hate criticizing Laginas. I hate going after their integrity or seemingly going after their integrity. I hate doing this. I love this show. (laughs) Do you really think this is how I want to spend my time uh, doing this podcast? by, By criticizing the very people who motivated me to do the podcast to begin with? No way, Scott. No way. I hate doing this. But the more and more we see them digging in the swamp these last couple of weeks, the more this stoppage comes into focus for us and the more and more ridiculous their claim of losing their island becomes every single day. I don't know why they chose to essentially, I mean, honestly, insult our intelligence with the way they presented this stuff, but they did choose to do that and they didn't have to. Believe me when I tell you, I wish they didn't. And I want to talk about the mystery. I want to talk about what could have happened. I don't want to talk about this stuff. This stuff is just frustrating for me. (laughs) Scott, thank you. I really do hope I hear from you again. And and I hope this, this disagreement here doesn't keep you from listening to the show. And let me add this. I do, and I say this with all honesty, I hope to God that I'm proven wrong, that I had this completely wrong. And I'll tell you what, everyone, I will be the first one to admit that when I am, and I'll be happy about it. <laughs> all right, that's all for this week's email. Don't forget, if you have any questions or comments you'd like me to uh, talk about here in a future podcast, just send them along, island at com. So let's take a break, and we'll come back and discuss this week's episode, okay? All right, it's time to discuss this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island called The Unusual Suspects. Now, right off the bat here, let me just make a quick mention of a couple of scenes that are over from Lot 4. Uh, this is where they are, in my mind, mistakenly um, looking for something called The Hole Under the Hatch from Xena Halpern's map. Go back to last episode or the episode before and you'll learn more about that Um Gary Drayton brings out this huge metal detector, which he says can detect deeper. Don't know why he doesn't use this all the time. I'm sure there's a reason. Uh, And when he's doing that, he finds a metal piece of something or another and then proceeds to kind of twist himself into a pretzel a little bit, trying to somehow connect this piece of what looks to me like nothing more than scrap metal to a hatch as if we're looking for a hatch. Well, this is a piece of a hatch. Well, it's not a piece of a hatch. Uh, It was kind of tough to watch that scene, really. Um. We never heard any more about this little piece of metal, so uh, you know. for now, we can conclude it was really nothing of interest unless we hear from it again in the coming weeks, which isn't completely out of the realm of possibility. Sometimes that does happen. They go back to these things later on, and we hear about it later on. Mostly, we hear about it later on in that very episode, uh, but we didn't hear. Either way, what is curious to me is that they're still working over here, and they're still talking about Lot 4 Um and still talking about The Hatch all these weeks later. This is usually the kind of thing we see for maybe a week or two, and then it just kind of gets ignored for the rest of the season. Let's see what comes out of this. Um, They seem to be kind of harping on this a little bit, so maybe there's something more. Um, Sometimes this makes me think they're eventually going to find something of interest here, and that's why the editors are keeping this project kind of towards the front of our minds. Sometimes not, sometimes it's just... uh, Good content for folks who like watching Gary do his thing. We shall see. Anyway. All right. Now I want to talk briefly about the crackpot session we got this week. Uh, only this time the crackpot was actually Doug Kroll. And Doug's not a crackpot. Uh, Doug starts talking about the two rounded stones found on the island, I think both this year or one this year, one earlier than the year, right? Or, or last year. Now he equates them to ammunition from a small cannon, a small deck cannon. That seems plausible to me. And then he connects that to the Portuguese because the Portuguese used such cannons. They're certainly not the only ones who did. He then pulls up an old map um, that he thinks might indicate that the Portuguese came to Mahome Bay. It's an interesting picture. I'll put it up on Facebook for you guys, um, and you can get a better look at it. Uh, This is kind of an interesting little chat, a great reminder of the early history of the European exploration of North America. But here's the thing. During, During this conversation, Laird Niven says, quote, the Portuguese have been coming, I'm certain, for years, fishing. The point I got out of what Laird was saying here is we know the Portuguese were in Nova Scotia. And finding evidence of that fact is not proof of anything clandestine or treasure related or mysterious or unusual really in any way. Um, it's a great start to a treasure theory, <laughs> okay? But that's really all it is. They're a suspect who we know was here. And Doug even kind of admits this fact. He, uh, and the editing here makes this whole conversation choppier than I'm sure it really was. But later, Doug says that uh, at least, quote, we know they were here. Meaning that at least we know for certain, if we're going to focus on the Portuguese as a suspect that they're an okay suspect because they were in this area, making them more of a suspect, really, than uh, somebody like the Knights Templar, who we don't actually have any proof of them being in this area. Does that make sense? But just like what we said about Lot 4, the interesting thing here is how we're really sort of harping away at the Portuguese a lot this year. As opposed to previous years, when we would talk a lot about the Templars mostly, and then a couple years, the British military, the founding fathers, uh, Spanish explorers. It seems like this year's suspect of choice is the Portuguese. And perhaps by the end of the year, we'll know why that is, why the team's focus has switched so heavily to this particular suspect. All right. So let's talk about the money pit now. Now, according to Terry Matheson, as we start the show off, the team are still chasing shaft six, meaning, um, you know, and this is what we've talked about a lot. Um, we talked about a lot in last week's podcast. It is one of these uh, shafts that was dug down next to the money pit and tunneled over. You can go have a listen to that one last week's for sure. We, we kind of dug into that pretty deeply. They're now digging a new hole called borehole H1.4 or HI.4 or something like that. Uh, And I think this is down right where they're kind of to the south of C1. They were digging sort of in this area once already. Um, There are two things to keep in mind. They're looking for evidence of something worth, um, how, how do I put this? What they're doing here is they're looking for evidence for something that they might uh, to, to cause them to put one of these huge cans in this area, right? Uh, they're not looking for that. Despite what they say, they're not looking for something in particular. Now, if I were to guess, um, despite how they make it seem, they don't actually think they're going to find Shaft Six with these boreholes or its tunnel. They're just going to find some decent evidence that this might be the area where that could be located. Am I making sense? I'm kind of rambling a little bit here. Uh, for one thing. The tunnel might not even be intact anymore. Uh, But also, as Rick says here in a very interesting um, comment, he says that they don't actually know in what direction the tunnel ran. And this is a point I'm always trying to make to you guys and something I think that's worth reminding everybody as often as possible. A lot of people on the show, right, are made to look out, either presented to us through editing or through their own hubris, I guess, um, to... They're they're presented to us as knowing certain things as facts, so, such as we know exactly what, how deep shaft so and so was and wherever tunnel whatever is tunneling to. But the fact is, the records of those things by those searchers are sketchy at best. They really are, and I think it's hard to to really put that into focus for you. On the Patreon during this, our friend Steve asked at this point, uh, quote, why do these guys need 50 bearing points to find the money pit? Shaft X was 18 feet from the money pit. Shaft Y was 15 feet from the money pit. And on and on it goes. Now, Steve, I really think that this is why. that they And they don't like to admit this, right? To put it another way, despite the confidence they often portray on screen, the fact is no one can really say for sure what most of these old treasure hunters really did. And where they actually did it. Most of the records they kept were records that they put down to sort of promote the idea of investing in the treasure hunt. Am I making sense? So these are (laughs) a lot of a lot of judges wouldn't find this uh, this evidence uh, admissible in their courtroom, you know. Later at the research center, we're getting a pretty big debrief from surveyor Steve Gupta. He puts up this worm graphic, as we like to call it, showing us where they're digging and where they want to go next. Now, there are a couple of interesting things here to mention in this scene. First of all, uh, we always need to factor in the Dunfield crater, the humongous hole that was dug and then filled back in by treasure hunter Robert Dunfield in the mid-1960s. They hardly even mention it uh, at any point, but we can clearly see here um, that it seems to be plotted on nearly every map we're looking at now, including this one. The area they, they're digging in, this HI.4, H1.4, is at the very edge of the Dunfield crater, this, this place off to the side. Again, Dun, Dunfield dug this huge hole. It was something like 135 feet deep and like 100 feet wide. But it was cone shaped, so it, it, it was only that deep at its deepest point and then it got, you know, kind of went outwards from there. So as we get further and further towards the edge of that 100-foot mouth, we're getting into areas where Dunfield only dug sort of a little bit. So does that make sense? So as they're digging down into this particular area they're digging at the beginning of the show, what they're looking I'm looking for shaft 6, they're actually looking at an area that is relatively untouched as best we can figure out. Uh, at least deeper than down the first few feet, right? Certainly not down to 118 feet. Dunfield would not have dug down there at this point. That that much I know for sure. So it's kind of untouched by Dunfield's sort of massive destruction. However, they decided to start digging in a new area now. They want to head north towards borehole F4, which is where they got some of the most intriguing um, water testing results that they talk so much about, the silver testing and all that stuff. Now, the problem I'm seeing here is that this area looks much, much closer to the center of the Dunfield Crater, the deepest part. It looks right in that area. Now, I'll put a photo on Facebook for you to see what I mean about this worm <laughs> this worm graphic and what I mean by the Dunfield, where they're digging here. So... I, Basically, just telling you this because I want you to keep in mind, folks, as the season and the digging progresses here. Anything that they really find above, oh, I don't know, probably 125 feet or so, is just backfill. What piece of wood they pull out at 95 feet or 100 feet? That's just backfill. That came out, and Dunfield threw it back in. He Dunfield actually dug all this hole up, and then had big piles of dirt and just dirt and wood. Everything that a searcher did before him were all just in piles there, and he just pushed it all with a bulldozer right back into the hole to fill in the hole when he was done with it. So like I said, uh, you know, whatever they find, there will be backfill. So we shouldn't be at all surprised, (laughs) right? When later on they dig in this area with borehole F 2.4-4, I forget forget what it's called. We shouldn't be surprised when they started digging there that they kind of came up empty. All right, so let's finish up over at the swamp. We begin with the team still excavating in the southern edge of the swamp, just feet from the shocking and restrictive government-ordered workshop that is ruining their ability to search the island. Uh, sorry for the snark there. I just can't help it. Speaking of snark, uh, we're really hanging on to the SS Maddie Blake here, aren't we? That uh, ship anomaly. The only reason I can think they might be doing this, hanging on to this ship anomaly for so long, despite despite disproving it on the show themselves years ago, is because, you know, the things they're starting to find here are starting to look a lot like evidence of something nautical, in my mind, a wharf or a pier that was here. And maybe the show is just wanting to have something to lean on to try to make this stuff look like evidence of a possible ship buried in the swamp, which is more dramatic and also much more <laughs> much more of a fantasy. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, you'll see what I mean in a few minutes. Gary pulls out this big stick, really big stick, right? It look, kind of looks like a survey stick. Could, could be a lot of things. Um, it doesn't have a... The, the bottom of it is cut off, so you don't see anything that looks like it was driven into the ground. It's hard to really tell. He then later pulls out some flattened pieces of wood. It looks like planking or maybe decking of some kind. Again, they're saying throughout this that this is evidence of a ship, but in my mind, I'm also seeing evidence of a wharf, which let's face let's face it, makes a heck of a lot more sense and is a much bigger possibility here than a ship. Or as our patron Neil said, quote, or a shipwreck washing ashore years ago, end quote, another good possibility. I'm sure some old sheds even in the area were destroyed and by these storms and the pieces scattered all over there. That happened a lot back then, and we know of that happening in that island area. Um, You know, when the people built those sheds by hand and they didn't have metal nails to fasten them and all that kind of stuff, I mean, these things blew apart. Later on in the show, the team uncovers yet another piece of wood, which looks like another piece of a planking or maybe even the outside of an old barrel. Then Billy points out something in the bucket, which turns out to be what appears to be some kind of a pin, like a wooden pin, a tapered piece of a pin. Call them a belaying pin. We've talked about this in the podcast also, it's from a ship. You use it to tie up your rigging and that kind of thing. Um, it could be that hard to tell. I gotta say though, I mean Billy's got an eagle eye. I mean he's looking at this from inside the excavator, and it's the exact same color as all the dirt around it. And it's this little tiny thing, and he pulled it actually out of the bucket. I can't believe he saw that. Uh, they also find another piece of something that is a lot harder to identify. It was certainly carved, and looks to me to be a very different type of wood. Or, or I should say, at first glance, it looked just different and somehow than the rest of the items. For one, it looked like it was either, I don't know, just from, from again, first, first glance, maybe it was stained or some kind of sealant was used on it. Um, it was just a totally different color uh, than all the other pieces of wood. And it made it appear almost like it was newer, like it hadn't been in the muck that long uh, compared to the other pieces we've seen. Now, later on in the war room, Laird comes and he brings these pieces in. And from looking at it more closely uh, in the war room, it seems this piece might be a much denser piece of wood, which would explain the difference. and And it also seems to have some wear on it, like a rope was tied around it, maybe pulled back and forth. Now, in my mind, what I was looking at is possibly the piece of an old wooden cleat or something like that. I'll put a photo on Facebook for you to see what I mean of this particular piece that they pulled out. It kind of makes sense to me uh, that it would be a cleat. And these cleats were made with a much denser wood than you would make other things out of. I mean, I've read locust part of the wood, it was some of the woods they used, something like that, a real dense wood. And that would explain um, why it didn't seem to be as wet, um, didn't seem to be as dirty, because it just, that kind of muck can't get into such dense wood. And yes, a cleat and a pin are absolutely just as much evidence of a pier as they are evidence of a buried ship. Now hopefully sometime soon we can bring in diver Tony Sampson and we can have him search under the water in this area just offshore from the swamp so we can see if there is actually any evidence of an old wharf that would have extended right up to this area and would have been here at the time when the water levels were we're much lower. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Digging Oak Island. Shameless plug time, don't forget, every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m., you can tune into WDVR FM and you will find me hosting a show called The Bourbon Street Bistro, 2 to 4 p.m playing the music of New Orleans, and then from 4 to 5 p.m. hosting a show called Island Vibes, where we do kind of a tropical show there. Uh, You can listen by um, if you're in western New Jersey or eastern Pennsylvania by tuning in to 89.7 FM, or you can go to wdvrfm.org and listen at uh, 2 o'clock between 2 and 5 on Wednesday. Apparently, you can also just tell Alexa to turn on WDVR. I don't know. I don't use Alexa. Anyway, don't forget, you can also keep the show going and help us out by becoming a patron. If you think the show's worth five bucks a month, head over to patreon.com to learn a lot more about that. And also, if you're enjoying our podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Thanks to everybody who's done that already. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time out to write that and also especially for the kind words. And again, if you have any questions or comments you want to send directly to me, just send them via email, digginoakisland at gmail.com. You can also go to uh, social media, follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. Just put at digginoakisland into your search bar, um, you know, and if you have any messages or questions you want to send to me, if you don't want them right on the air, just please make a note of that and I'll do my best to uh, first talk you in to allowing me to answer it on air, but then also maybe answer you as best I can. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Have a great, great new year, and uh, thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.